1: Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is Gabriel Sherman, a writer for Vanity Fair and a contributor to MSNBC. Sherman was the preeminent journalist who chronicled the rise and fall of Roger Ailes, the former head of Fox News. His 2014 book, The Loudest Voice in the Room, offered a full picture of Roger Ailes running Fox News. Sherman then went on to break and chronicle numerous stories of the sexual harassment scandal that would eventually bring down Ailes, who died earlier this year. Gabe Sherman joins me from his house because he's such a big star now in uh, New York City. Gabe, how are you? Uh, thanks,
0: Isaac. Good to be with you.
1: So um, we should tell the audience that we know each other a little bit. And uh, I think the, w- the reason we know each other a little bit is because I would say about five years ago, we were probably the only two people in our uh, extended social circle that was spending hours every day watching Fox. You were watching Fox because you wrote a uh, – Very uh, informative book about Roger Ailes. And I was watching Fox because I'm a sad, pathetic person who wanted to make myself more depressed. And then we started text messaging and uh, talking about Fox and so on. So I want to have you here to discuss all these things and to discuss Fox and the Trump administration. But uh, first off, why don't you tell people why you got so obsessed with Roger Ailes and writing about Fox News?
0: Yeah, well, that's a great question. A good place to start. You know, I've covered uh, media and politics uh, for the better part of my journalism career, and I had written a series of pieces uh, for New York Magazine about cable news and uh, reporting in that world. I realized that Roger Ailes, uh, through the founding of Fox News, had just fundamentally rewired the way politics uh, was practiced in America. And um, you know, I, I looked and talked to my book agent and realized that there had not been a real rigorously uh, reported and authoritative biography of Ailes. Um, and so I thought it was a, a great subject for my first book. And I naively didn't really understand that the reason there had not been... Um, a book about Ailes, is that he is, or was now that he's passed away, was one of the most vindictive and paranoid people uh, that have probably uh, ever lived. And he uh, did everything he could to thwart and attack and demean uh, reporters who wrote about him. And I found myself um, for about three years in his crosshairs. He hired private investigators uh, to dig into my past and commissioned uh, right-wing websites to smear my reputation and, you know, uh, not so veiled anti-Semitic ways, and so um, that is that. That is why there hadn't been a book about Ailes, and made the reporting of my book so difficult. But I think the end result was that um, it really pulled back the curtain um, to explain how Fox News worked from the inside and revealed it to be a real cult of personality um, that functioned as uh, a megaphone for Roger Ailes's paranoid and. And really eccentric and bizarre worldview uh, filled with Islamophobia and racism um, and, you know, just uh, really extreme uh, political viewpoints that a lot of people perhaps thought maybe were just cynical and canny ways to market a news network to an audience, but were in fact uh, real expressions uh, of his extremism.
1: Well, let me ask you, I mean, when when Trump sort of came on the scene in 2015 or emerged even more fully on the scene in 2015 and started expressing a worldview that uh, was very similar and I think well known to a lot of people uh, like us, unfortunately, who had spent a lot of time watching Fox News. Did you feel that you had some sort of insight into Trump early on that he was a sort of sort of a Fox News watcher and someone who was who was getting a lot of his ideas from this? Do you remember when that struck you?
0: Yeah, you know, without question. Um, You know, uh, we should remember that uh, Roger Ailes gave uh, Trump a weekly call-in segment on Fox and Friends, which is the id. It's the ideological core uh, of Fox News. Uh, It's where the talking points that Ailes wanted to inject into the bloodstream originated. And uh, once a week, Trump would call in really for unfettered um, uh, uh, freewheeling discussion to put out his worldviews. And that's where Trump really pushed a lot of the birther and racism I- ideas and the anti-immigration uh, positions that, you know, became the bedrock of his candidacy. And we should also uh, point out that Ailes and Trump have known each other since the 80s. And Ailes was giving him uh, political advice uh, in the run-up to him uh, announcing uh, his candidacy. And I think, you know, my reporting on Fox uh, and Ailes... You know, helped convince me that Trump was a credible uh, candidate because I knew that his uh, views were so in sync with the Fox News audience, which forms the base of the Republican Party.
1: Let me just stop you there, because I mean, uh, one of the things that I think is interesting and I think uh, something that is worth paying attention to with both Ailes and Trump is you were saying that Ailes was not taken seriously as As someone who actually had this frightening worldview. And I think, you know, I think aspects of Trump are sort of made for TV. But I also think that one thing we've learned as the past two plus years have gone on is that many of these views that he expresses that a lot of people find abhorrent, I think, are probably more dearly held by him uh, and more honestly held by him than I think people assumed when he rode the escalator on Trump Tower in June 2015.
0: Oh, yeah. No, I think without question. And, you know, we all need to to remind ourselves that, you know, Donald Trump has been a race baiter pretty much for most of his adult life. And in fact, going back to his his uh, early years, you know, his father famously was uh, uh, tried by the Justice Department for uh, housing discrimination in their middle class housing uh, developments in uh, Brooklyn and Queens. And Donald Trump, in the 1980s, uh, took out a full-page ad after the uh, notorious Central Park jogger um, uh, uh, case, in which we now know five young African-American men were uh, wrongly accused of the crime, and Trump was advocating for the death penalty in their cases, and uh, actually has not yet, to my knowledge, apologized for that position. So Any day uh, now, Gabe. It's coming any day now. Any day, yeah. Just like uh, we're waiting on, you know, probably when the wall gets built is when he'll um, do his apology. But, you know, here's some seriously, um, joking aside, you know, this is really has been a a large part of his worldview for most of his life. And yes, there is a reality show aspect to some of his, uh, his, uh, positions, but I think we also need to acknowledge this is kind of where, where he's been most of his life.
1: What is your sense of how Fox has changed since Ailes left
0: the network? That's a great question. You know, in some ways it's changed a lot. Um, you know, the culture of fear that he presided over with the uh PR department functioning like a uh a internal uh security service, you know, spying on employees, leaking damaging info to employee uh to to media about it, wayward employees. You know, that's pretty much go- uh, mostly gone by the wayside. And um, you know, the the sort of lockstep talking points that emanated out of his second Floor office have also sort of subsided. You know, the network does not, you know, function as a a pure expression of one person's worldview. I mean, I think Fox now today, you know, from the people I talk to there, and also as a, you know, still someone who who watches the network, uh, you know, what I see it now is more of a, a business. And Rupert Murdoch, who privately loathes Donald Trump, continually, I think it's a little bit of a false narrative that's been out there in the press that Murdoch and Trump have sort of forged this, you know, buddy, uh, this bromance. I think this is purely a business decision on the part well, of- What you think
1: actually loathes? That's a strong oh, word.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I know from my reporting, people have been in private settings with, with Murdoch, um, you know, say that he, you know, makes dismissive comments of Trump, um, and, you know, tells him to stop tweeting, obviously, which is something that Donald Trump will be, you know, doing- uh, till his last dying breath is, you know, typing onto his phone. So, um, yeah, so this is not a close personal relationship. This is, you know, from my reporting, a a, a business relationship in that Murdoch was smart enough to know that the audience Ailes had assembled are diehard Trump voters. So it doesn't make sense really to shift the network ideologically but it's not it's it's more of a just a, a, a cable news business to the same degree that MSNBC uh, where I should point out I'm a contributor you know they have a, a primarily a, a liberal uh, primetime lineup because that is you know they, there is a robust audience for that and when in you know 2006 when Keith Olberman really blew up on the scene and then they added Rachel Maddow and others you know that was really a ratings a ratings play that wasn't, you know, the the direction of someone with a grand ideological political vision.
1: Okay, but let me ask you about this because you know it, you say that Murdoch may loathe Trump, um, and it's clear that his sons do not like Trump and do not like what uh, ideas Trump is putting into the into the into the into the. Country. Yeah, we should point
0: out that James Murdoch's wife, Catherine uh, uh, Murdoch, uh, just recently tweeted. Uh, you know, uh, comments about sexual uh, assault and harassment being, you know, wrong on both sides, which people on Twitter took to be a veiled swipe, uh, perhaps not only at Donald Trump, but at Roger Ailes.
1: OK, but I look, I, I get that and I get why the Murdochs are not going to turn Fox News into a left wing or centrist network, because it's incredibly important part of News Corp's uh, business. But it does seem that they could do something about things like Fox and Friends, which is the morning show, which you've spent too much of your life watching, which is full of conspiracy theories and fake news and all these things, and in fact, seems to influence Trump in a negative way. We often see him tweeting ridiculous things that he clearly had just seen minutes before on Fox and Friends. I'm sort of surprised that there's been no effort by the Murdochs, if this is how they feel, to at least clean up some of the crazier stuff on Fox, the Seth Rich conspiracy that Sean Hannity uh, was peddling. It doesn't seem like they're they're really interested in in doing any of that, and you think they maybe could in ways that didn't entirely hurt their business.
0: No, I, I agree. I think you actually raise uh, some very smart points. I don't think you would, you know, perhaps dramatically lose their viewership if they dialed back the conspiracy theories by even you know twenty five percent. But you know, I think you know Rupert Murdoch's uh, philosophy since he replaced Roger Ailes um, after Ailes was fired uh, in July of 2016 has been to kind of do no harm. And so Murdoch has kind of, with a light touch, uh, removed, you know, the the sort of internal fear and paranoia that presided over the network. But externally, you know, the programming on air has largely remained intact. And, um, and I, I agree, I don't think there is a necessarily um, a compelling reason for that, other than that they just know that, Fox News is the profit center of 21st century, the parent company, and um, and yeah, they,
1: you, don't wanna, you, they don't want
0: to they don't want to mess with it. You have these surreal things
1: where the Wall Street Journal editorial page, which I think a lot of people see as being close to Rupert Murdoch's actual views, will uh, will write something about you know. Trump is doing this well, but he needs to calm down. He needs to stop tweeting crazy things. And then that morning, he will have tweeted something crazy that he saw on Fox. Of course, the Wall Street Journal and Fox are both Murdoch properties.
0: Yeah, no, they kind of are there. It's a it's a hydra multi hydra headed beast. Um, you know, I we should also mention Hannity. I know you talked about Fox and Friends, but, you know, Sean Hannity, who Trump just gave an hour long sit down interview with, you know, is you know, perhaps the most influential outside advisor to the Trump administration. You know, I was talking to a very prominent Fox person recently who was telling me how, you know, Sean Hannity talks to Trump. Trump calls him almost every night after uh, Hannity's primetime show just to kind of give him feedback and uh, bat around ideas and gripe about all the people who are slighting him. Um, so, you know, between Fox and Friends starting the day and Hannity ending the day, you know, the network is really bookended by – um uh, sort of the most pro-Trump media. It's something you know, very much closer to you know the way you know Putin's uh, uh, media in Russia, state-run media functions, than it would be sort of historically a an American uh, media institution. And you know, one thing that I reported this week in my Vanity Fair piece is that the reason, one of the reasons Trump has cocooned himself inside the Fox News bubble and granting basically only his his only live television interviews to Sean Hannity, Fox and Friends. Um, and most recently, he sat down with Mike Huckabee, are that, you know, he, if you talk to Trump advisors, they'll tell you he has lost a step. And, you know, recently, he was supposed to appear on the um, season premiere of 60 Minutes in that interview. Um, he, Trump uh, declined to, you know, agree to do the interview, but it was discussed. And Trump's advisors breathed a sigh of relief that that interview didn't happen because the idea of Trump being in an adversarial live, you know, TV interview where the where the audience and viewers could see him flailing and rambling, I think was cringeworthy to his inner circle.
1: I want to, uh, I want to talk about Trump's mental state. I just want to ask one more Fox question for you, which is that before we get onto that, which is that, you know, one of the points of your book is that Ailes was a brilliant showman and was a great hirer, And he hired these people like Bill O'Reilly, who people may find distasteful, but are incredible television personalities and uh, talents. And, you know, we see Fox now and you see people like Tucker Carlson, who has failed at basically every TV show he's ever had until now, which God knows how many TV shows that is and who I do not think is a particularly skilled broadcaster. And you know. You you see their 9 p.m. hour, which has been a mess and they can't quite figure out what to do with it. And they're still getting great ratings. And so I guess I'm wondering from you is that Ailes obviously was a television genius, but it also seems like we're at this point with the right wing audience in America, not to sound condescending, where you can sort of put anything on the air and uh, you will get extremely good ratings it almost reminds me of the fact that the republican president can kind of do anything he wants and have 35 percent
0: approval rating yeah what was his line he could shoot someone on fifth avenue and no one would care um yeah yeah no i there is something to that you know ailes used to joke around the office that the fox news audience was uh aged 55 to dead and there is a you know it's it's a kernel of truth to that joke you know the Fox News audience is it's it's really an actuarial game at this point they get older every year i, I believe the mo- some of the statistics i saw were like 68 something years old for the median fo- age of the Fox News viewer so these are people whose habits are set and they come home, or they sit at home. A lot of these people are shut-ins, and they click on Fox in the morning, and they just keep it on all day. It kind of at this point, doesn't really matter the content of the programming, other if, except if it has to, you know, remain reliably conservative and somewhat uh, conspiratorial. Um, so that's really the Fox. You're right. I think you know at this point the the audience is baked in, and it's a very stable audience. But we should point out it's not a growing audience. I mean, the ratings still dominate uh, the cable race. But it's a very static set number. This is not a growth industry, and we've seen in fact you know in online uh media uh the growth and explosion of sites like Breitbart, which have tapped into this new generation of much you know the younger video game kind of gamergate kind of guys that is the sort of growth and the the more uh dynamic part of the of the right wing movement
1: well, and the flip side of this is you know Fox lost its eight and nine p m hosts Bill O'Reilly, who left after sexual harassment allegations, and Megyn Kelly, who went to NBC, where you work uh, after um, after contract negotiations and after herself being a victim of sexual harassment. And, you know, they're obviously two extremely skilled broadcasters, but I think in both cases, we see that without the power of Fox behind them, they've both had trouble kind of finding an audience and finding their niche.
0: Yeah, no, of course. I mean, that was Ailes' great insight, and he, um, he loved to uh, lord over his... His talent that yes he made stars out of people who were basically nobodies. I mean Bill O'Reilly had been fired from you know all of the major networks and Sean Hannity was you know a a third-rate talk radio host and a few years prior to becoming to Fox was painting houses as Ailes liked to joke and yet Ailes then made them you know fabulously rich and, and influential. But at the end of the day. You know, it was the platform in this kind of network that Ailes created that when people stepped outside of the Fox uh, bubble, look at what happened to Glenn Beck when he tried to start the blaze and his own right wing media company, he completely flamed out. So there is something, and this maybe gets to the point of what you were saying about Ailes, you know, both being a genius, but also just, you know, being at the right place at the right time. There is something to this, you know, audience that he was able to assemble that, you know, made the people who appeared on Fox, you know, incredibly powerful. And they have struggled outside of, of of that universe to replicate that. But I just want to touch on Isaac, one thing that I remember you wrote, because you did review my book for the New Republic, I'd love to see if you've sort of thought about that is I remember you, you argued that, um, You know, one of your your uh, your gripes with my book was that I overstated Ailes's influence. And I wonder now in the age of Trump and the way the Republican Party has been consumed with um, sort of racist and conspiratorial thinking, whether, you know, you've revised that or or if that if that was a natural thing that would have happened anyways, or if you think that Ailes really did uh, rewire the Republican Party. Uh
1: the podcast is over now so Gabe it was great having you here. No um I'm kidding. Uh no I think you're exactly right. I think your book was uh closer to the truth than my review was. I um you the book came out in 2012 is that right? 14 Fourteen. I'm sorry, but it covered. It went through the 2012 election. And yeah, exactly. Um, it
0: sort of ended with the, you know. The, yeah, and the, you know, yeah.
1: 2012, you had Mitt Romney win the nomination, despite the fact that uh, he was not a Fox favorite, despite the fact that Limbaugh and Hannity on the radio, these guys were not at all uh, Mitt Romney fans, and he still managed to win. And so, um, I think my take was, well, you know, these people have. Um, real power in the Republican Party, but not to the degree, but, you know, that some people think essentially. And uh, I, I, I think uh, now in hindsight, it's um, even if that were true about 2012, it's it's very, very hard to make that argument now. And yeah, I, and I think, yeah.
0: yeah, I think there's something to that. And I've also thought a lot about that. And, you know, what ails throughout most of his career that he was so successful at is he was the kind of bridge between the grassroots conspiratorial and oftentimes racist base of the Republican Party and the country club business establishment. And, you know, Fox and – well, actually, going backing up, you know, during his time as a political consultant, you know, Ailes famously ran racially charged campaigns on behalf of, you know, let's say George H.W. Bush, a patrician country club Republican if there ever was one. And he channeled that kind of grassroots populist energy towards the establishment. And I think as Ailes gained more power uh, and Fox gained more power, you know, he decided that he didn't need to, um, you know, work towards those establishment ends. And which is what we've seen, you know, basically the movement Ailes built is, you know, took over the Republican Party. And instead of channeling themselves behind uh, a candidate like Mitt Romney, who they never, let's be honest, never were excited about they decided in 2016 that they were going to, um, get behind, you know, Donald Trump and, you know, that's why, go ahead.
1: Well, no, I I was just going to say, I mean, I, I I think the way in which your book, your book was very prescient was, you know, even if you can say Fox couldn't make or break every single Republican candidate, uh, that it doesn't have that absolute power, what Ailes managed to do over a period of time and, terms of sort of putting these ideas out and changing the way the Republican base thinks about politics and about culture and about society and about race. Again, all these things were present. But the, the the effect that he and talk radio had, I think you see with Trump. I mean, it's it's very, very hard and what Trump is able to do and the support he's able to keep. And it's very hard to it, it seems very hard at this point to to overstate Ailes's influence. You wrote a piece for Vanity Fair about his declining mental state. And, um, you know, this has been something that I've been hearing for a long time, which is that when he started giving these crazy, crazy, doing these crazy campaign events in Iowa that, oh, Trump was getting crazier or always getting weirder or always lost it. You know, you heard rumors of Steve Bannon telling people he's not going to last three months in the White House because he's declining, you know. And I I guess what I'm wondering is from your reporting, because you're closer to, to this than I am, I mean... Do you really sense that he's declining in noticeable ways? And is is this a widespread fear in the White House?
0: Yeah, you know, I think um, that's a great question. I think what my piece tried to capture is um, the conversation taking place, um, you know, at the highest levels of Trump world, including inside the West Wing and also amongst his close outside advisors about his erratic and uh, 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 increasingly unstable behavior as he, you know, reacts to events. And, and, and I think, you know, the example I gave of the 60 Minutes interview, you know, there was a sigh of relief, according to the people I talked to, that he did not sit down with Charlie Rose for the season premiere because of, you know, what might happen when he's in a live, you know, TV uh, situation. And, you know, we saw just yesterday uh, when he signed the executive order, it was almost like a comic-like moment, uh, seemed like st- pulled straight out of Veep. Uh, where he, you know, gave the speech, thanked everyone, and started to walk out of the room, and Mike Pence had to remind him that he had forgotten to so- actually but sit down. That and happened sign. like six six months ago too, didn't it? Something. Yeah, somewhere... exactly. It's happened before too, and you know, people sort of point to these little moments um, as you know evidence that he is. Um, in some, you know, decline. Now, of course, I'm not a doctor and, you know, I'm not diagnosing him from afar. I can, all I can do as a reporter is talk to the people who are in rooms with him and speaking to him on a regular basis. And I feel it's, you know, in the public interest to, um, you know, put those observations uh, into, the, into the public space so that we can all as, you know, as, as citizens, um, you know, sort of understand what is going on inside the White House.
1: You had another bit. Um, I can't remember if it was in your piece or on a TV appearance you did, where you made reference to something about you know uh, Kelly and Mattis like tackling Trump if he were going to try and launch a nuclear war. Can can you explain exactly what you heard?
0: Yeah, so I uh, I was talking to a, a very senior uh, Republican official. Uh, we were discussing um, you know why. Uh, you know, given all the reporting that we know, not just in my piece, but the LA Times and others, uh, Washington Post, about the complicated relationship that Trump has with um, his chief of staff, General Kelly, um, as Kelly tries to the best that he can to instill some sort of structure on this White House. Um, You know, the question obviously is, how long is Kelly going to last? And if he is so um, unhappy in the job, which by all accounts he is, from my reporting and others, why he has not either resigned or been fired. And this very senior Republican official was saying that, you know, based on the conversations he's had and the way people think about the White House, you know— it is not. Uh, it is not uh, out of the realm. It's speculated that you know Kelly and Mattis and, and HR McMaster you know discuss about what would happen if Trump did order some sort of nuclear first strike. And I and I, what I thought was so striking about and, and, and stunning and, and downright scary about this observation was the, the way in which he talked about specifically how these men who are in charge of our national security what they would actually do. This is not a theoretical or. Um, or abstract idea. I think what he was speculating, I should point out, this is not, I'm not saying that my source or I know that Kelly has discussed this, but it's very informed from the inside about the way uh, these men think, is what they would do in the event Trump did something crazy, like, you know, order an attack on the North Korean uh, missile launchers, uh, or some sort of first strike. And it's, 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 that's what's scary to me is that they're actually at, Asking the question of what they what Kelly would specifically do would he have to actually physically restrain Trump from you know ordering um, the 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 you know the White House to you know enter the codes or whatever the process is if they're on the road it's the nuclear football and that to me what it was so was striking again echoing this idea that the president has a very unstable emotional character
1: you know I I got to Washington in the Bush administration and was there. Almost through the end of the Obama administration. And I, when you talk to people who worked for either of those presidents uh, off the record or over drinks or, you know, whatever it was, they could be critical of the the administrations they served. But I would say Republicans for Bush and and certainly Democrats for Obama respected and had a great deal of um I had a a very high opinion, largely speaking, of the presidents they served. Whenever I uh, hear usually secondhand from people who work for work, uh, work for Trump or talk to reporters who talk to these people, there's almost nobody, it seems to me, in the White House who has anything other than sort of contempt and embarrassment for Trump. No one who really seems to believe in him, and everyone seems to sort of treat him like a child. I, is that a fair accounting? Uh, what I just said in your reporting on on how even the people closest to him are, or may share ideological affiliations with him uh, view him.
0: Yeah, I think that's generally fair. I mean, I think you know there's a few exceptions of some of the campaign loyalists like Dan Scavino and Hope Hicks, and some of the the longtime Trump. Uh, uh, Confidants who he's brought into the the West Wing, but generally the the professionals that he's assembled in his administration, I think that's a fair characterization. And I think the best uh, way to put it is that these these men and women say this man was democratically elected. We this is the system we have. The electoral college, for better or worse, is the system we have. And the American people uh, wound up with this president, so they are doing their best to serve the country, even if they see on a daily basis him do things that. Um, are you know completely illogical um so I, yeah i do think that's a fair uh, a fair uh, assessment and you know i i've done a lot of reporting around um the comments that have now been uh public uh publicized by nbc news about you know rex tillerson reportedly calling the president a moron in a national security, after a national security meeting. And that is completely reflective of all of the conversations I heard. I was talking to a very senior White House official this week who said, you know, in meetings, part of the reason Tillerson and Trump have such a contentious relationship is, you know, Tillerson sits in these meetings, and according to people who have been present, You know, he carries himself like he should be the president. I mean, he's looking at Donald Trump and he's saying to himself, I mean, his body language and such says, I cannot believe this man is the president of the United States. And he'll say things like, you know, when, especially around the Iran deal, which uh, Tillerson and Trump have reportedly clashed over about whether to to recertify it, Uh, Tillerson obviously pushing uh, the position that we should uh, recertify the deal, Uh, Tillerson will say, well, Mr. President, it's your deal. You can do, I disagree, but it's your deal. And the idea of the Secretary of State telling the President of the United States what is and what isn't his deal is viewed by some advisors as incredibly condescending. But I think it is reflective of the idea that Tillerson, you know, looks at the President's behavior and, you know, does not see somebody who inspires, um, you know, tremendous confidence. I mean, Rex Tillerson ran what is essentially a nation state of his own. I mean, the Ex- ExxonMobil is a global corporation with, you know, operations, in, you know, and I can't even count how many countries. And, you know, he looks at the way Donald Trump runs his business and said, if you were in the private sector, there's no way that you would be running a company like Iran.
1: When, uh, w- last question for you, when you talk to people in the administration about their feelings about this and when they express, you know... Um, uh, dismay over trump 's mental state or his managerial abilities or lack thereof are 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 people are they sort of like is, is, like do do, do do people talk about him like oh he 's like our uncle who says embarrassing things or is it are are people actually scared of where the country's headed do they not care because they 're nihilists like what how, how do you broadly speaking how do you think people feel about this?
0: You know, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I can't speak, obviously, to the calcula- calculations that, you know, I'm sure anyone in the West Wing is making all manner of different, you know, calculations about why they're there and they're working in this administration. I mean, I think, look, in Kelly's case, it's he made clear yesterday in his briefing, you know, he's there for the country. He did not, you know, he did not talk about this being the best job he's ever had. He talked about it being the hardest job he's ever had. And so you know, I think, yes, to your point about is does trump you know just sound like somebody's you know crazy racist uncle? yeah, I mean, I had a very uh senior trump advisor tell me this week that you know he's trump's lost the step he remind this this advisor said that Trump reminded uh him of um you know of of his grandmother when you know she started to like lose it a little bit in her you know later years, so that is you know i this is the man that the people who work with him see and um you know why they're there people are there for their own ambition people are there for the safety of the country you know people are there um yes and i'm sure there are some nihilists so um i think for as, speaking as a reporter but also just as an american like i think um uh you know general kelly and, and, and mattis and there are people there who uh genuinely want to protect the national security of the united states and um and i think this will be a storyline that will continue to play out um and i'm surprised frankly uh and again disappointed that you know we could have the sitting chairman of the senate foreign relations committee come out and say that the president is possibly putting us on a path to world war three and the best that paul ryan can do is just say oh he hopes that bob corker and donald trump can sit down to work out their differences i mean i I look at this as a story that I'm covering. That's a national emergency, uh, and I wake up every day, you know, feeling that urgency to cover this story. And and yet, you know, we still have one of the two parties in Washington sitting waiting around for their tax cut. And as Frank Rich so uh, aptly put it the other day, I think on Twitter, he said, you know, you know, tax cuts aren't going to be honored in the sake of in the case of Armageddon. So I think, you know, uh, the part the Republican Party needs to put you know the country ahead of their own partisan interests and. Up until now, unfortunately, I think they've uh, been reluctant to do that.
1: Well, sleep well, America. That's a a heartening note to end it on. Um, Gabe Sherman is a writer for Vanity Fair and an MSNBC contributor and the author of the book, The Loudest Voice in the Room, which is a biography of Roger Ailes. Gabe, thanks so much for being here. Good to do it. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dillon with help today from Chris O'Day. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. If you have an idea for a guest or you just want to let me know your thoughts, please email me at at askatslate.com. That's A-S-K at slate.com. Even though you already listen to podcasts, there isn't much quality audio for your kids. Pinna is a safe, ad-free, guilt-free audio entertainment app just for kids. Pinna has hours of original stories, children's podcasts, and all-you-can-listen audiobooks gathered all in one easy-to-use app. It's perfect for car time, bath time, group time, bedtime, or any time. Try Pinna for free. Go to pinna.fm listen to start your free trial today.